Good morning, Grace. To all of you who are in here and to all of you who are out there. Good to be with you guys this morning. I want to ask you a question to start our service. When was the last time you thought about your new body that you're going to receive one day? When did you have that discussion last? It's something that I planned to get to today, but I never made it in first service. I know that shocks you. But I want to still read the section of Scripture that speaks about the hope of our resurrected body. And I want you to take your Bibles and go with me to 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter. And we're going to begin reading in verse 35. And we'll go to the end of the chapter. So I'm going to ask that you would stand as we honor the Lord in reading His Word. This is a chapter about the gospel, about the fact of the resurrection of Christ, and the fact that one day believers will be resurrected as well and have a new body. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Won't that be wonderful? No more breakdowns. Verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one of men, and another flesh of beast, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differs from star and glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, 
but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he comes to the instruction. <laughs> After 57 verses of here it is, this is what he tells you to do with it. Therefore, and this is all great news, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Listen, guys, I hope you're not so attached to this earthly body. I know this, the older I get, the more I'm like, Woo, man. Aren't you looking forward to that new? Wow, it's coming. You know, everyone's going to live eternally. And you're going to live either with the Lord or away from the Lord. I trust you know without a shadow of a doubt, you're going to live with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this chapter that speaks of the certainty of your resurrection, Lord, and speaks also of the certainty of ours. We will be changed. We can't imagine in our minds what that is exactly going to look like. We get a glimpse of that, obviously, in the life of Christ as he was raised. Lord, we know because he's alive, because he's raised, Father, we know that we too shall be raised and we too shall be changed. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we will see you face to face in all of your glory. And until that point in time, Lord, help us to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Help us to, to be about that because of the hope that we have and the future that we have, the certainty that we have. Help us not to live like hopeless people, but help us to live as people of hope in the one that saved us, Jesus Christ the Lord. May he receive all the praise and glory this morning. In his name I pray all of these things. Amen. All right, everybody, let's remain standing and worship the Lord together. this morning I'm forgiven because you were forsaken and I'm accepted you were condemned 
will and your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Sing again. And I'm forgiven because you were forsaken and I'm accepted you were condemned and I'm alive and well and your spirit is within me because you died and rose again amazing love how can it be that you my king would die Jesus, you are my King. Jesus, you are my King. Amazing love, how can it be? You, my King, would die. Let me honor you. 
Isn't it good to be debt-free this morning? Amen. salvation where your love poured out 
was pretty full. 
I was just thinking about Buddy and Brenda. The Lord didn't come. Soon she's going to be with him. As we were singing that, when we come to die, give me Jesus. I'm sorry. I love the people that the Lord's given me a shepherd. Bibles and go to 2 Timothy in the second chapter. Isn't it great to know that when you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord? Young people, you think that you're just going to live on and on and on, and you are. But eventually you're going to die. And I hope you know without a shadow of a doubt you belong to Christ. I was sitting there Friday with Brenda and uh, Buddy. And she was sharing with me how she came to know Christ when she was 14 years old. You don't hear very many Teenagers getting saved, do you? Because you remember what that was like. We had it all figured out when we were teenagers. I'm sorry, guys. I just had a hard time. Uh, I promise you there's a message. My heart's just full of the hope that we have in Christ. And... um. I don't think I've grieved since all I've I've heard about since I first heard about Brenda and I don't think I've cried much at all. Uh, I don't know we were singing that song about heaven and I'm just like Lord this is not going to be good. I'm going to be crying up there. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were charged or asked to teach the Bible? I want you to think about that, and I want you to think about it in terms of the Lord's expectation for those that have that privilege. The other day, I did a devotional for a high school baseball team locally, and I talked about effort. It went along so well with what is going on right in this text. I've been praying, Lord, give me something for these boys. And he's like, you got it. What are you talking about? And so I talked about effort and what a coach expects from a team. And a coach expects that his team would put forth maximum effort on the field. 
That's the expectation. And in this particular case, I know this coach, and I know that's his expectation. He is expecting maximum effort from his players. Let me ask you a question as it relates to the Word of God. What do you expect from those that teach you? That open God's Word, that teach and preach. Are you not expecting maximum effort from those men that do that? That have the privilege to do that? I would hope that you have that expectation. I asked those boys the other day. I didn't know. I guess there were 30-something boys in there. and I said, no, I don't know how many of you go to church, but what do you expect? If you do go to church, what do you expect of the one that stands up and opens God's Word? Do you have an expectation? Are you expecting that person to have put forth maximum effort in preparing for the message? And then I related that to baseball, that this coach was expecting maximum effort from you in preparing to play the game. And I said, my field's not your field. I'm not on a baseball field. But I have a field. And the Lord expects from me maximum effort as it relates to the study of his word. So I want us to read these verses in light of that. My intention, first service, was to get through verse 19. We made it through verse 15. But that's okay, because I told him I've got notes for you. You can read all week long, and then you'll better understand what we'll be dealing with next week. I don't know what happens to us when we come to verses or passages that we know well. But I do have one thought. That sometimes we can become so familiar with a verse that we miss out on the context that that verse sits in. And we might not have an appreciation for that verse like we need to, which 2 Timothy 2.15, a lot of people know, and they know by heart. But do they know what's going on? And why in the world would Paul say, look, I want your effort and your maximum energy in studying the Word? Why would he want that? Well, we'd say, well, it's the word. It's obvious. But there's more to it than that. So let me read these verses as we look this morning at the responsibility that Paul gave to Timothy. Verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling, rightly dividing, or cutting straight the word truth but avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus now I want you to look at what it says here who have gone astray from the truth what truth I mean if you're looking at that you're going the whole thing You have to ask yourself that question. But it's interesting to me that Paul is very specific about the issue with these two. He doesn't leave us guessing as to what was going on with them. He says, who have gone astray from the truth saying, and so he's specific here, saying that the resurrection has already taken place And obviously, it says, and they upset the faith of some. 
Nevertheless, and this is a very strong verse. It means in light of, hey, look, in light of the fact that there are some that are propagating a false message, nevertheless, basically, verse 19, he's saying, hey, the Lord's in control. You're not. He says, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, and that word stands is in the perfect tense. And that means has stood, is standing, and will continue to stand. That's good stuff. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we were singing that song, you are so, so good. You're so, so faithful. It is so, so true. (laughs) You are. We are so, so thankful that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. Can we thank you for that this morning? Lord, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling whether physically or spiritually. Father, we commit them to you. There may be some in here today who are not on the right trail, who either don't have a relationship with you or, Lord, they know you, but they're not walking with you in fellowship. Help us, Lord, to learn from what Paul told Timothy about putting maximum effort out there when it comes to the study of your word Because, Lord, we can't leave things out. We don't have permission to do that. You have to be prepared. We're not going to be perfect. We're men. But, Lord, you expect us to literally exhaust ourselves over the study of your glorious word. May you be honored today, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So when I was uh, about mid-1990s, that sounds like forever ago, right, when you say that now, the mid-1990s, um, I was coaching a basketball team at a Christian school here locally, and it was a junior high team, and there were about 12 boys on the team, and I love sports, and I love especially basketball, baseball, football, get me in any one of those settings, and I just relish for that. But I was coaching junior high basketball, and the first day of practice, of course, you meet the players. I didn't know any of these boys, never seen them in my life. Introduced myself to them and say, let's get to work. And so we start, we get to work. At the end of every practice, we would do what are called suicides. Any of you familiar with a suicide? It's awful. It sounds bad, right? It is bad. Um... You literally line up and you run from in line to the free throw line to midcourt and back, and you're just constantly doing this, right? Till you make your way back eventually. Well, we did that, and I don't remember how many, obviously, I made them run, but I like to watch boys run. So I just made them run as much as I wanted them to run. Well, at the end of that practice, I had a boy that came up to me and he said, Coach Blunt, can I run some more? And I was like, what? He said, can I run some more? I said, son, you can run as much as you want to run. And he ran, and he ran, and he ran. And you know what? Every single practice, that boy would be either running suicides or he'd be up on the track. 
he wasn't one of the best five basketball players, but he was the one that gave me maximum effort. And he was one of my starters. And if I told that boy, if I said, Bryce, I want you to guard their best player, he, you know, hey, we do. Yes, sir, coach, I got him. And then he'd leave the huddle. I got him, coach. I still got him. He was an unbelievable young man. He just put forth maximum effort all the time. And it made an impression on me. It's been a long time ago, and I still remember him. I've seen him a few times since then. And you know what? He still calls me coach. And I don't know if it's because he's forgotten my first name or my last name. But it spoke a lot to me as a coach. Well, when you come to this passage of Scripture, Paul is telling Timothy, you need to put forth maximum effort in the study of the Word. In fact, it's interesting that there's a shift here from verses four, from verse 14 to verse 15. Here's the shift. It's subtle. You might not have caught it, but you might have. He goes from saying, hey, Timothy, tell this to others. That's your responsibility to, hey, Timothy, you need to do this. <laughs> well, it's one thing to come to an audience, and if I say, you need to do this, Versus, hey, I need to do this. And that's exactly what's going on in this passage. There's a transition, and the transition is from, hey, you go tell them this, to you need to do this. And he begins with the issue of putting forth effort. That's the third responsibility that Paul gives to Timothy in the passage here that we have before us. He says, you need to put forth effort. Now, in your translation, in the Bible that you're looking at, it may say, study Okay, It may say be diligent or it may say be zealous. The idea in the original language is put forth effort. Well, how many of you have taught the word of God? It requires effort. You don't just stand behind a lectern and go open your Bibles and let me tell you what I got. You need to have studied the passage in fact, I think you need to drink it in and drink it in and drink it in so much that you're so familiar with it. It's not going to be perfect. You're not going to have perfect teachers and preachers. But there ought to be in your mind, I come on a Sunday morning or I come on a Wednesday night or I come on a Sunday night and I want to hear from the Lord. I want to hear his word and I want to hear in the language that morning that this teacher and this preacher, this Bible study leader, has put forth maximum effort in preparing. That's exactly what Paul tells Timothy. He says, study, be diligent, be zealous, put forth effort. But it's interesting, it's not the only time that word effort is used in this particular verse. Notice what it says in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a what? Workman. That word in the original language means this. It means to put forth maximum effort with the goal of excellence. Now that's a little different. 
It's not just putting forth the effort, but it's putting forth the effort with the mind of excellence. So that when I stand before those junior high boys or those college kids or a congregation that I've prepared, that I've done my homework. One of the privileges I've had over the years is to be able to go to pastor's conferences and rub shoulders with guys that I just am like in awe of how they teach and preach. Um, I actually got to one time literally rub shoulders with Adrian Rogers. I don't know how many of you guys know who Adrian Rogers was. I think he's the best preacher that I've ever heard in my life. He was an unbelievable preacher. And I actually got to sit in a room with just him and Dr. Stephen Olford one time. And I was like, whoa, now these are two giants. And here they have this little dude in here, right? And I'm like, I'm getting to listen to them and all the experiences they have had. And, and, and do you know the two things that they landed on? I didn't tell them this first service. In our conversation, and we were talking about specifically me considering the pastorate at Springville Road. And they said, Thad, why would you want to pastor that church? I said, I can only think of two reasons. I was scared to death. I think I was just shaking, right? And I said, well, I love the Lord and his word, and I love those people. And they both kind of rose up in their chair, and they said, qualified. I thought, isn't there more to it than that? Well, obviously. But each one of them, reassured me, hey, Thad, that's where you need to land the plane. You need to stay there. You need to be fervent in your study of the Word of God. And you need to love your people so much that you spend a great amount of time in study. That's the greatest way you're going to show them that you love them. So in this passage of Scripture, Paul is saying to Timothy, look, you put forth maximum effort Now, there's some things that go along with that in this particular verse that maybe have been passed over in the past, and you've, you've said that verse, you've memorized that verse, you know that verse. But there's some things in there that maybe you haven't considered. First of all, you need to understand that the word study or be diligent or be zealous is in the present tense, and it means this. Timothy, you, if you're not putting forth effort toward excellence, start it now. He's not giving him an option. He's not saying, look, Timothy, if you want to put forth maximum effort in studying the Word, then go ahead and do that. He's saying you need to do it. And if you aren't doing it, you better start it now. Now, I don't know how that hits you. I like that. I think one of the weaknesses in the church overall today is we have men that are standing behind pulpits who aren't prepared who want to tickle the ears of their people, who are looking for the applause of men. My responsibility as a minister of the gospel of Christ is to teach the word of God and preach the word of God. That's my responsibility. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you need to do it now. You don't need to delay. But he doesn't just say that to him. He says, you need to do it wanting the approval of God. (laughs) Now, this is a big subject. Notice what he says. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman. 
How many people in church culture today are looking for the applause of men? Could we say that a good many are? That they're willing to skirt issues in the scriptures because they're not quite sure how the people are going to hear what they're saying. Like, for example, if you want the approval of men today, you better not talk about the role of the husband and the wife in the home. That's not going to go well. You say, well, why won't that go well? Because there are a lot of women who are ruling their home. You say, that's hard stuff. Yeah, it's hard stuff. But what does the scriptures clearly tell us as it relates to the husband and wife and the father in the home? Husbands are to be what? The spiritual leaders of their homes. And one of the problems in our culture today is we have weak husbands and weak fathers. That's the truth. We have men sitting in their homes and saying, I just can't do this. You don't know my wife. Well, did you know her when you got married? You say, yeah, but she's got a strong personality. Teresa doesn't have a weak one. But I'm the spiritual leader of that home, and she would tell you that. That don't dominate her. That's what people think about, you know, a whip and, hey, that's not it at all. In fact, if you look how a husband is to lead in the home, you're like, whoa, what kind of language is that? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we could just dismiss with prayer and go work on that, right? But the culture says, no, hold on a second. Haven't you caught up? It's okay for women to lead the home. According to who? According to God? Answer? No. Now, this is what happens sometimes. You have some that might say, well, yeah, but my husband's not leading, so I have to lead. The Bible say to do that? Answer? No. No. In fact, I've taught this before, but just as a reminder, a man and a woman are equal in value. The husband and wife are equal in value, but it's the responsibilities. It's the position. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the role of the wife that she is to be submissive and respectful? I bet it, I don't know when I was in Ephesians last. See, a teacher or a preacher, if he's concerned with what man thinks, he'll never preach the hard things. In fact, you can just turn on your television. You can find people who aren't going to preach difficult things. I've been in a church one time where this literally happened, the pastor got up and he read from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I thought, hallelujah, he's going to preach the word. Because I was a little skeptical when I walked in. And then they had some music and then he came back up. And his Bible was closed and he just started talking about, I don't remember what. Teresa grabbed my leg, like, don't get up. Because I thought, hey, this is great stuff, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. There are so many today 
that are teaching and preaching, and not just in this context that you're in now, but in classrooms that are unwilling to teach the whole counsel of God. But you know what Paul said to the Ephesian elders on Miletus? He said, I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I've given you all of it. Before I leave that subject, can I talk about fathers just for a second? Fathers, your children need you to lead the home. You say, yeah, but I'm not a preacher and a teacher. You don't have to be. Pray with your kids. Pray with your kids. They want that. Pray with them. Pray with them because one day they might not want it. So Paul says to him, do it now, do it wanting the approval of God, not men. I read an illustration that I thought was fantastic about that. A young man once studied violin under a world-renowned master. And when his first big recital came, the crowd cheered after each number. But the young performer seemed dissatisfied. Even after the final number, despite the applause, the musician seemed unhappy. And as he took his bows, he was watching an elderly man in the balcony. And finally, the elderly one smiled and nodded in approval. Immediately, the young man beamed with joy. He was not looking for the approval of the crowd. He was looking for the approval of the master. <laughs> That's good. Whose approval are you looking for? Paul's saying to Timothy, look, it's the approval of God that matters. And so as you teach and you have opportunities to preach, it's the approval of God that matters. Because, you know, the third thing he says to him is an inspection is coming. It's coming. Do it now because an inspection is coming. You say, what inspection? I don't see that word anywhere. Well, look in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. That's it. Did you know that the Bible tells us in the book of James, chapter 3 and verse 1, these words, Let not many of you become teachers. My brothers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Guys, one day, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know if there's a big old line or how that works. But one day, I'm going to be in front of the Lord giving an account for what I did with his word. That's the truth. And every single person who teaches the word will be accountable to the Lord for what they taught. So we don't want to be ashamed, do we? I don't think some people think about it a whole lot. I think they just open the Bible and start reading a verse. And this bothers me to no end. And I've seen it a bunch in the last nine or ten months. Taking a verse and way out of context. Just abusing it. I mean, I'm like wanting a microphone. Stop. Stop. 
See, it's serious. It's serious to take this book, God's Word, God's love letter to man, and to go through it and to study it. I had somebody recently ask me how many hours do I spend in study every week. I said 25 to 30 that I know of. You know what? It's not easy. I'm just going to be honest with you. He said, well, yeah, I mean, you just stand up there on Sunday, you start talking. There's more to it than that. And a lot of times, this happens to a teacher, and those of you who taught know. You're in it, and you're studying it, and it's more for you than it is for the people you're going to address. <laughs> and you know it. That's the thing. You're in God's classroom. I had someone years ago challenge me in that area when I first started pastoring. And when that happened, honestly, my feelings were hurt. And all his statement was, was that I think you just need to put more study time in. Man, I was 37 years old. What's he talking about? But to this day... It's one of the best statements that ever been made to me. Not perfect. But I spend time in the Word because I have the responsibility one day to stand before the Lord and I have to give an account for how that's done. And what's interesting about this particular phrase is don't be ashamed. Listen to the definition of this word. It describes one going through emotional pain as a result of coming up short in effort. Listen to that again. It describes one going through emotional pain as a result of coming up short in effort. You've been there and done that with people. Where someone's asked you to prepare to teach or to lead a small group and you come and you're not prepared. How many of you would admit that's happened to you. And you've sat behind a, a, a lectern or you've stood behind a lectern or you're sitting in a circle and you know because the Spirit of God is convicting you going, hey, you needed to prepare more than you did. That's happened to me. And there is emotional pain. And Paul says to Timothy, look, you be diligent. You put forth the effort to present yourself approved to God. I didn't mention this first service, but it's important. Present yourself to God. You. In other words, hey, Timothy, it's your responsibility. See, my responsibility is not to go through and critique you first. My responsibility is to look at what's going on in my life as it relates to disseminating the word of God how does that look for me and one day I'm going to stand before the Lord I don't want the emotional pain of going hey Lord I just didn't bother with that because that wasn't popular I feel sorry for the health wealth and prosperity people and the people that sit under that it's a false narrative. It's not biblical. I've wondered really in the last 10 or 11 months, 
What have they been doing in the last 10 or 11 months? What are their messages now? I mean, is the cupboard empty? See, the Christian life is difficult. And we know passages like the godly in Christ will suffer. But Paul says to Timothy, look, you don't want to be ashamed, Timothy. Now look at what he says next. Who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. So not only does he say, hey, look, put forth maximum effort. Do it now. Do it, do it wanting the approval of God. Do it knowing an inspection is coming and you don't want to be ashamed. But then he tells him, do it with the mind of continually cutting it straight. It's present tense. In other words, this is to be your activity all the time, cutting it straight. It's not just to be like this once in a while, well, I'm going to cut it straight with them today because it's easy to talk about the love of God. Who doesn't love that subject? That's easy to give to an audience. God loves you. But what about when it comes to passages like we talked about earlier about the husband and wife and the role of the husband and wife? See, the hard stuff I'm responsible for as well. And it's interesting, some translations here have accurately handling or rightly dividing. Um, I think I gave to you in your notes a quote by Spurgeon. Look what he says. We're going to talk about it further. But look what Spurgeon says in your notes about this. He says, a plowman stands with his plow. So he, this is what he sees as Paul referring to. I kind of think it's a little bit different analogy, but that's all right. I can disagree with Spurgeon, right? <laughs> so he, he's looking at it, and it's not a wrong analogy. It's, it's fine. But he says, a plowman stands with his plow, and he plows from one end of the field to the other, making a straight furrow. I believe there is no preaching that God will ever accept, but that which goes decidedly. Now look at this. Through the whole line of truth from end to end. <laughs> you can't skip. You don't have permission to skip. And then he says, and is always thorough, honest, and straightforward. The problem with people today is they are looking for people who are humorous. Who tell great stories. And there's nothing wrong with humor and there's nothing wrong with stories. But if that's all you got, you're empty. And Spurgeon says there needs to be an honesty. Well, I kind of think Paul may have been having in mind something else. And one of the ways that this phrase is translated is cutting it straight. Now, do you remember what Paul did besides being an evangelist? And a church planner. He was a tent maker. He said, well, how do they make tents? Glad you asked the question. He would take furs from animals. And he would sew them together. Now, if you're going to sew something together, you have to be meticulous. And you have to make a straight cut in order that that tent would go together properly. Those furs had to line up. And guess what? Paul picked up 
Timothy on his second missionary journey. And he continued to be a tent maker. And they had to make cuts. And, and Timothy would have witnessed what Paul did. And the importance of making that straight cut so that the furs could be sewn together. And I don't know for a fact that that's what Paul had in mind. But both analogies fit. The point is this, that Paul tells Timothy, look, you've got to cut it straight. You can't, when you come to the word, go like this. You can't go, um, veer around things. You have to go straight through it. And I don't know how that sounds to you, but it's absolutely critical. That we are committed to going straight through the word. That we're committed to that as believers in Christ. That we're committed to rightly dividing God's word. And in the context of this passage and what he's about to get to, you're going to see how important that, become, that became for Timothy. That he would spend his time focusing on the responsibility that he had as a minister of the gospel of Christ. You say, well, why would that be so important? Look in your Bibles in chapter 4. Just real quick. We're going to get to that someday. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's your responsibility. The word means herald. Herald the word. Be ready all the time, he says, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? Why should there be a commitment to this maximum effort in studying and preparing to teach God's word and preach God's word? Notice what it says in verse 3. For the time will come. Will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We are living in that time. People do not want to endure sound doctrine. Paul says, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves. In other words, they're putting forth effort. They're bringing just that right person that's going to come and stand behind a lectern and not, not talk through the word of God, cut it straight, rightly divide it. We've got to find somebody that's in agreement with us. Like, for example, if we're going to be a church... And we believe as a church that abortion's okay, then we gotta find a person who's gonna stand up behind a pulpit and say the same thing we're saying. You say that's happening? It's happening in our culture. We stand back and go, I can't even believe we're at that point. We're at that point. I'm just in my my own personal reflection on it i i just can't understand how a believer could support anything about abortion i'm just being honest with you i have no understanding of that but i've found over the years that there have been some christians who are okay with it and i have to go time out Time out. Is God okay with it? Class? No. Not at all. Then how in the world have we advanced to the point where there's confusion in the church over an issue like abortion or an issue like 
hey, what's marriage? I'll tell you how. You've had men and women stand behind pulpits and propagate a different message. In fact, I had a guy tell me one time, Thad, you need to catch up to the 21st century. Now, this is nobody here. I'm like, really? what do you mean? What does that mean? See, this is God's word. And he says here that these guys go to an effort to the point that they're accumulating for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. What's your commitment? See, you have a choice to make. You're in this. You have two choices. Are you going to be a person? The first choice is this. Are you going to be a person who faithfully studies God's word? Cutting right through it, not skipping anything. Are you committed to that? Secondly, are you committed to sitting under people who are willing to cut it straight? Without apologies. I'm a constant learner. I don't know it all. When I get stumped, I call George or I call Dr. Hugh. Why? I respect those men. You know what I know about them? They're going to cut it straight. Now, it may not be something I've even considered. So none of us are standing behind a lectern going, well, I got it all down. No, we're constantly learning. But we have to cut it straight, and there can't be confusion. I want to end with an example this morning that speaks about the issue of pleasing God or men. This is where I ended first service, and I realized there was absolutely no way I was going to get through the second point. I want you to go in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. I want you to see this. Because I want, you to, I want you to understand the depth of what Paul is saying to Timothy. In terms of accepting their personal responsibility to put forth the effort in studying God's word. Galatians chapter 1. Paul writes to the churches of Galatia in verse 6, and he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Like, whoa, it's a big deal. He says, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Notice how serious this issue is the issue of grace. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be anathema, destroyed. You're like, well, hold on, that's just too harsh, man. He really didn't mean that. Uh, yeah, he did. In fact, he repeats the same word in verse 9. He says, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, which would have been the gospel of what? Class? Grace. 
How is man saved? By grace alone, right? Through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing else. You can't even add that much. Then it becomes a works gospel. You say, well, is that happening today? I think it is absolutely happening today. I think it's happening on a level that I'm not even sure the ones that are doing that even understand what they're doing. I think they've got these categories and there's justification and there's sanctification. And they're putting obedience along with grace. They're distorting the truth. Now you say, well, that's going to offend some people. Yeah, maybe. But here's the issue. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? For by what you've been saved. Past tense there, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God. Right? And it's not of works. Why? Because man likes to do what? Boast. Hey, and Paul says, we're going to boast, but let's boast in the Lord. <laughs> right? Let's boast in what he did and what he's doing and what he will do. So this is a very serious issue. And as I said, first service, if you're a little bit off, you're off. So if you're going to cut it straight, it's grace through faith plus nothing else. That's it. Grace alone. Faith alone, Christ alone. Now here's what he says at the end of verse 9. So I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be applauded. Pat on the back. No, he's to be destroyed. <laughs> That's a huge statement. And then Paul concludes it with this. He says, for am I now seeking the favor of men? Or of God? Class? God. Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, which Paul did, by the way. He outlines his testimony in Philippians 3. This is what I used to be. I used to be zealous for this. Now I'm zealous for Christ. And he says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant or slave of Christ. So you know what? Timothy had to make a decision. Am I going to be a man of God committed to the word of God, which for him would have been the Old Testament? Am I going to cut it straight? Or am I just going to go, well, and walk over to the side and say, I don't need to address that because my audience might hear that wrong one thing you know about Paul, he sure didn't seem too awfully fired, concerned about what people thought, did he? You know why? Because he was committed to Christ completely. When I was a little boy, we went to a Baptist church for six months. And then my dad couldn't take it anymore. And he said, I'm tired of hearing about tithing all the time. We're going to find us a Bible church. And there was one in Lake Charles. <laughs> Lake Charles Bible Church. 
I sat under two pastors at Lake Charles Bible Church. I sat under Don Barrett, who, is, who was at Springville Road years ago. And I sat under, we called him brother. That was back in the day when you called the pastors. Brother Herb Lane. Now, when I listened to Don Barrett, I was older, and I really appreciated the fact that he cut it straight. I cannot think of one time where Don Barrett stood behind a pulpit and did not cut it straight, no matter what he was addressing. But I had Herb Lane when I was a young boy. And one of the things that the Lord has done for me over the years is he's had me to think about and recall all of the men in my life who were faithful to do that. Brother Lane was a big dude. Big dude. He was probably six foot two, six foot three. And when he'd walk up, and he was just a big man, and when he would walk up with his big black King James Bible or whatever and put it in that pulpit, this is like 1971, and he would slam it on that pulpit, he'd say, open your Bibles. I'd be like, you know, but every week, it was, open your Bibles. There was never a Sunday, I remember, where he didn't say that. What are your expectations for those that lead you? Whether we're talking about behind this pulpit or in a classroom setting, your expectation and mine need to be this. We don't need to settle for anything less. One of the things that we were charged to do at Bible College was to do projects. Mm. How many of you have been to college, you've done projects? Oh, goodness. I had Dr. John Wex when I think it was my second year in Greek. And um, Dr. Wex had this brilliant idea that we would create sermons through the book of First Peter. He said, men, I want you to decline all the nouns and parse all the verbs, and I want you to make sermon outlines through the whole book. And I was like, why, Lord, did I sign up for pastoral theology? You know why I did? Because it was the Lord doing it. It was men like George and men like Dr. Wex, who I loved and respected so much. I did not appreciate them the way I should have. But I do now. Dr. Wex said, men, you have this semester to do First Peter. Well, for me, I'm one of those guys that works under pressure pretty, pretty well. And I was like, yeah, we got a whole semester, right? But then it's like coming down to crunch time, and I'm like, First Peter's due not long from now. And we had been married a couple of years, my wonderful wife and I. And I was finishing up my project. And it was due that day because I was already in the middle of the morning. It was 2 o'clock and then it was 3 o'clock. And at 3 o'clock, I was satisfied. that I had put forth all the effort I needed to put forth. So I'm ready to go to bed because my first class is at 7.30. I go to the bedroom. I climb in the bed. And my wonderful wife says to me, Hey, hon, did you do your best? I was like, my wonderful wife, my wonderful. She said, babe, did you do your best? And I'm like, 
Uh, I want to shove her off the bed. <laughs> I got up and I worked on that project until it was 45 minutes before my first class. But you know what I did? I learned something through my wonderful wife. Dad, you need to put forth the maximum effort. Guys, when it comes to this book, we need to put forth the maximum effort. Now listen to this, for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, please forgive me for when I haven't put forth maximum effort. I really think probably the sermon foremost was for myself. That's how you work. But then it's for all of us, Lord, because we have been charged to faithfully declare your word. And we all have different settings in which that takes place. So I want to ask you, Lord, that you would help us to have the mind to put forth maximum effort because we know the enemy is out there and working. Help us to be men and women, young people and boys and girls who have an expectation for those we listen to. And that for those of us who've been charged to declare your word at whatever setting, whether it's with little Awana kids or big Awana kids or youth ministry or college ministry, I pray that we would not take any shortcuts, but that we would faithfully study so that we can faithfully proclaim the greatest news of all and the best book that's ever been written. Thank you so much, Lord, for your love for us and your concern for us. May we honor you today in the things that we say and the things that we do. In the name of Christ, I pray. With thanksgiving, amen. As you are dismissed, I hope you have a wonderful day, a wonderful week.